investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, investors, to episode 14 of the Absolute Return podcast. Today is Friday, May 17th, 2019. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kesslern. A number of really interesting uh, news events, deals to talk about. Specifically, there were two airline deals announced in Canada this week. Number one, we had Onyx uh, acquiring a WestJet for $5 billion. We're going to talk about what makes this specific deal unique. The second deal is uh, Air Canada. They bid for Air Transat and put the company in play. We're going to talk about how the Quebec government comes into play on this transaction. also wanted to chat about some of the economic data coming out of China for April. Then lastly, we're going to chat about Trump's move on Chinese networking equipment maker Huawei, how he banned it from U.S. 5G networks, how that fits with the current U.S.-China trade war. Oh, I don't want to forget, we also want to chat about uh, this new research that we're putting out called AlphaRank. So we're going to explain what AlphaRank is all about at the end of the show. Some airline consolidation in Canada with Onyx, the private equity firm, moving to buy WestJet, striking a deal for $5 billion inclusive of debt. This deal was done at $31 per WestJet share, representing a pretty massive premium of 67%. Now that premium could be a bit illusory in terms of valuation because it was actually only done at 5.9 times EBITDA, that's based on 2019 estimates. So the valuation is relatively low, yet the premium is high, which shows you how down in the dumps WestJet shares were uh, over the past while. The share price is quite a bit lower. Even with this massive premium, it is lower than I believe where it hit in uh, 2014. WestJet shares haven't been doing well so far, and perhaps Onyx is trying to make a cyclical play here to catch it at the bottom of the cycle. Some deal dynamics, it's expected to close late 2019 or early 2020, subject to a shareholder vote, court approval, and regulatory approvals. Some background behind the deal, so Onyx made its first takeover approach just in March. This deal came together relatively quickly, less than two months, which to me shows that it likely wasn't shopped, i.e. there was no auction process, and with no auction process, Onyx coming in with a fairly strong $30, $31 per share bid, 67% premium. I mean, shareholders got to be happy with the price they're getting there. And lastly, I want to talk about how this is a leveraged buyout. Onyx is a private equity firm, meaning that they do use a lot of leverage or debt to take WestJet private. And some of the numbers behind that to keep in mind is it is a pretty unorthodox deal given that private equity firms typically don't play in businesses such as WestJet, which I classify as being capital intensive, highly cyclical, and pretty dangerous, those two characteristics to load a bunch of debt onto this company. What are your thoughts on this deal here? Yeah, so you mentioned the leverage nature, and although... Onyx hasn't announced how they'll be financing the deal. 
it'll likely be with a substantial portion of debt. So their current net debt to EBITDA ratio is one, about 1 1.2 times, but they can bring that leverage ratio probably to two or three times, which would result in financing it with about 850 to $1.7 billion worth of debt and the remainder being financed with equity from the Onyx Partners 5 PE fund, which is about uh, $7.2 billion mm -hmm. US. Uh, so they do have some potential there, um, as well as this isn't Onyx's first uh, foray into the aerospace sector. They actually have a current investment as well as a few other investments, exits from the from the sector. But yeah, in terms of the merger ARB spread, currently at about a 3% growth spread, assuming an end of end of year close with two dividends, that's about 6.3% annualized. Assuming an end of Q1 close, that's about three quarterly dividends and um, about a 5% annualized. Yeah, so decent spread. I'd be wary on the fact that it is a leveraged buyout. Those typically come with higher risks if you are going to uh, arbitrage the share price, the difference between where it's trading at and the $31 takeover price can be a good strategy, but you certainly need to know a lot of the details behind it. From a regulatory perspective, I don't see a lot of pushback given that Onyx doesn't really compete. It's more of a financial transaction. And the thing with financial transactions, if the market heads south, it's not a strategic deal. Financial buyers can walk away if they no longer deem it attractive. So you face some market risk as an ARB on this trade in addition to uh, financing risk, which always comes with a leveraged buyout. Typically it's nothing, but you know, if we, if we hit a rough market with a turbulence, pardon the pun, then you know, it could uh, have some shaky trading in the arbitrage spread up to close as expected later this year or early next year. Also, I did want to mention that this isn't Onyx's first foray into the aerospace sector in terms of Air Canada and, and WestJet, is that in 1999, they actually attempted to merge Canadian Airlines, then Canadian Airlines, with Air Canada in a $1.8 billion hostile bid that it was eventually dropped after a long legal battle in Quebec. And so the background there is that Air Canada's current CEO, Kaylin Rovanescu, was then a lawyer at Steichman Elliott, and he was brought in by Air Canada to create a legal defense against Onyx's bid. Ultimately, the Quebec court uh, ruled that Onyx's bid violated a 10% ownership limit on Air Canada's shares, so they had to back down from the bid. There was a good summary of this in this week's Globe and Mail by Conrad Yakabushi. But in terms of that in terms of the uh, the bid violating the 10% ownership is there's another regulatory hurdle that would reduce the uh, the opportunity for other bidders, foreign bidders, especially is the 49% bid where Canada Transportation Act doesn't allow for over 49% from a foreign bidder. So bottom line here, attractive price for WestJet shareholders. Got to be happy with that big 67% premium. There still is a spread between the current price and the $31 takeover price. So decent arbitrage opportunity there. Just be wary the fact that it is a leveraged buyout. So take that into account when setting the uh, risk and the spread that you desire on this trade. Speaking of airline deals and Quebec, you have a Quebec-based deal with Air Canada bidding for Air Transat. 
This puts the company in play because Air Transat and Air Canada, they don't have a definitive agreement, but they do have an exclusivity agreement. They have disclosed the price, which is $13 per share for Air Transat. This represents a deal value of $520 million. One major issue that I see potentially in this deal is Air Canada is the country's number one carrier and Air Transat is number three. So major potential competitive issues there, if they do strike a definitive agreement, this will require antitrust approval through the Competition Bureau. Get in, getting into some market shares, I have some numbers in front of me here. Between the two, the airlines would command about 60% of transatlantic tickets and 46% of winter holiday seats to Mexico and the Caribbean. Given these numbers, in my experience, you see the Competition Bureau express serious concerns with respect to a merger if market share goes above 30%. In some of these business lines, they're as high as 60%. So you better believe that the Competition Bureau will look very closely at this takeover and could demand pretty major concessions out of Air Canada if it wants to close the deal to get the Competition Bureau on side and reduce the market share of these combined airlines. Just some background on Air Transat. What they do is they sell vacation packages and air travel to 60 destinations uh, in the Americas and Europe. Its fleet includes Airbus A330s and Boeing 737 and 800s. It's kind of been a self-help case struggling over the past number of years and that's why the share price was so low, quite a bit below an all-time high set a number of years ago. It actually had a net loss of 24.5 million in 2018, basically caused by increased competition from Air Canada's low-cost carrier Rouge, WestJet Vacations, and also Sunwing. It had a plan to invest $750 million to build hotels in destinations such as Mexico, but this was really panned by analysts as being too risky and also taking too long to materialize. Clearly, Air Canada saw an opportunity here. From the press we read, there were some other bidders interested, but there's an interesting dynamic here on the Quebec angle. So Quebec is very, very interested in being involved in corporations business by this i mean they don't want to lose head offices they really value that so there's a lot of political interference in m a activity on any quebec-based company not just that but quebec's current premier francois lego he's actually a co-founder of transat which is really interesting he said the deal would be good for the province since both companies are based in Montreal. He really didn't want to see it, neither did any other Quebec politician, go to a, uh, not just a foreign company, but even a company outside of Quebec, such as WestJet, which is Calgary-based. Some quotes here from uh, co-founder Francois Legault. He says, it's a lot of emotion for me because, of course, I was there for the first flight of Eric Transat with all the employees crying with joy. Of course, being bought by our competitor of the time is not easy to accept, but the good news is that Air Canada has a headquarters in Montreal. So I'm happy to see the headquarters will stay in Montreal if the transaction is closed between Air Canada and Air Transat. Some comments from provincial officials, they said that they prefer that Transat is not stripped down by any new owner, that its head office remains in Montreal, and that it continue to grow as a corporate entity in the province. 
Now behind these comments, they do have some teeth because they control uh, their pension funds. And the government said it has mandated its investment arm to prepare to support a local buyer if needed. And you have heard rumblings of a few other Quebec-based people uh, discuss a potential bid for Air Transat, but with respect to a versing or going head-to-head -head with Air Canada, a much better capitalized entity and a company that would have significant synergies, it's really going to be difficult to top Air Canada here. What are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, and it's interesting that you mention some of the uh, regulatory side because the break fees, in terms of the structure of this deal, the break fees do kind of represent some of that difficulty where 50, there's a break fee of $15 million payable by Transat if they terminate because of a higher bid, I believe if it's uh, more than $1 per share higher, and then a reverse break fee of actually $40 million payable by Air Canada if the agreement is terminated because those regulatory approvals aren't, aren't obtained. So it does provide them with a lot more incentive to come to terms with the uh, Quebec government. In terms of, yeah, some of those previously rumored interested parties were Quebec or and then Onyx itself. In terms of the Air Canada rationale for this deal, it can be viewed as a little bit of a defensive move to ensure that WestJet with Onyx's backing doesn't go after Transat. However, since Air Canada has more experience flying in Transat's markets, they are likely to realize more synergies uh, enabling them to pay a higher price than WestJet slash Onyx. But in, 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 and as well, Transat is in like in terms of their routes, they're in many of the same markets as Air Canada currently. So in the winter, the Caribbean routes, and then in the summer, some of those transatlantic routes. Yes, yeah, some of the, the strategic initiative behind this, this deal offers Air Canada new seat capacity and in-place Airbus orders at a time when some of Air, or I guess all of Air Canada's 24 Boeing 737 MAX planes have been grounded just given those two uh, previous crashes happened uh, globally and basically all the 737 MAX planes are currently grounded until Boeing is able to figure that problem out. You touched on the reverse break fee of 40 million, which I think is really interesting on a $540 million deal because this would be classified as a very large break fee eight to 10%, almost 10% of the deal value. And this shows that perhaps Air Transat Board of Directors was fairly, you know, they didn't, they knew it was a high risk deal from a competitive perspective. So they do want some cushion in case it is rejected by the regulators. Perhaps this signals that they don't have high confidence in the closing because that reverse break fee of $40 million would be pretty significant compensation for a block from the regulators. And clearly Air Canada seems like they are willing to take on that risk. So it must be a fairly strategic deal for them. Yeah, and one, one other thing that I'd like to mention as a disclosure is that one of Accelerate's funds does hold a position in Air Transat. Just wanted to touch quickly on a few economic data points coming out of China this week. For the month of April, Chinese data came in pretty negative as April numbers for factory activity, investment, and retail sales all trended downward. April retail sales growth came in at 7.2% 
this is a pretty big reduction from the 8.7% one year ago and a substantial miss of street consensus of an 8.8% average analyst expectation for April retail sales. Industrial output gained 5.4% in April from year earlier and this slowed markedly from an 8.5% year-over-year increase in March. While investment in fixed assets such as infrastructure during the first four months of the year rose 6.1% year-over-year, this is slower than the 6.3% pace this March. So all three Chinese economic data figures heading downward, coming in below expectation. Not the best data coming out of China as we've kind of seen year to date. What are your thoughts on, on these numbers in China in general? Yeah, one thing that I found interesting in addition to some of the industrial output was specifically in auto production as it dropped 16% with demand weakening while auto sales dropped 14.6%, which was the 10th consecutive month of decline. And so in terms of the consumer sentiment in China, it, it's really showing negative consumer sentiment as you're not going to be buying these durable goods like a car, you know, dishwasher, things like that, those larger capital items, if you're not very confident about the future. And the, the Fed has kind of assumed that this would be the stabilizer, but if they're going to want the consumer to be their stabilizer, it does appear that they're going to have to enact future policies to keep consumption as that stabilizer which could be you know, rolling out further targeted tax cuts and subsidies to low and middle income uh, groups. So from the perspective of this ongoing trade war between China and the US, what China has been saying is, in their country, they're saying that oh, the US tariffs, they're not gonna be damaging on the economy because the Chinese consumer is gonna be there as a replacement to drive economic growth. But what these figures are saying, specifically the retail sales figures, which came in significantly below estimates. They're saying that that's just not happening. China continues to be an export-driven economy. They're not going to be rescued by the consumer. I mean, these, these numbers were, they were pretty bad, far below expectations. And to me, as I've been saying ad nauseum in the podcast the last few months, is that the U.S. is winning this trade war. Clearly, the stock market of the two countries show this. Not just that, but all the economic data coming through also shows this. The data coming from China just consistently below expectations and the data from the U.S. consistently, consistently above expectations. At the bottom line for me is I think at some point China cracks, comes to the table and gets a deal done with the U.S. just because they need it more than the U.S. does. Interesting move by Trump, potentially stirring further drama in the Chinese trade war is he banned Chinese technology and networking company Huawei from the U.S. 5G networks. So what Huawei does is they're a, one of the market leaders globally in cell phones and they also make networking technology specifically for the next generation of cell phone networks, that being 5G. Huawei is the lowest cost producer of 5G networking equipment. What the Trump administration has done, they moved to ban Chinese networking company Huawei from the US market. This not only bans them from effectively the largest market in the world, but this also pressures 
other nations to take a look at banning Huawei as well. I know Australia has done the same. I believe the UK is in the same boat as well. New Zealand as well. Yeah, New Zealand there. So in moving to cut off the, this Chinese corporate champion, because Huawei is rumored to have very close ties with the Chinese government. So in doing this, the US really risks uh, spurring increased trade war tensions. Interesting to note, there's also a bill sitting in the Senate Judiciary Committee called the China Technology Transfer Control Act. What this would do, if put into law, it would put all core technologies developed through China's, quote, Made in China 2025 technology push on the Commerce Department's expert control list along with Huawei. Now, getting into this, China has a Made in China 2025 initiative where they're really trying to take leadership position in industries such as uh, electronics, semiconductors, chips, and they really want to become a technology leader. But what this bill does is the U.S. is really trying to cut China off at the knees here with respect to their drive to become a technology leader. And by putting them on the export control list, that's effectively banning all Chinese technology developed under this Made in China 2025 technology push. So that is a pretty big shot there from the U.S. Getting more into it, what China Made in China 2025 is meant to be, it's meant to be the next phase in China's plan to evolve its economy into a major player in the global technology market. For the past number of years, they've been trying to buy semiconductor companies overseas, but the US and other countries, I believe specifically Germany, have really put a stop to that because there's increasing concerns that China is utilizing the Chinese corporations such as Huawei to conduct covert spying surveillance operations in foreign countries. And I know Canada is perhaps looking to ban Huawei as well. Certainly interesting implications for 5G tech and even wilder implications for this potential trade war and Huawei's relationship with the Chinese government. What are your thoughts on this uh, situation here? Yeah, and so back to your earlier point is that in disrupting the global supply chain, this really has far reaching impacts on many different companies as under these rules, foreign companies wouldn't be able to sell any products containing or any products containing US parts and components to Huawei either. And so just to put that into perspective, Huawei spent 70, I believe it was $70 billion globally on components. And within that, there was $11 billion spent on US components. And so many of those components are bought from U.S. chip makers such as Broadcom, Qualcomm, Intel, components as well from Microsoft and, and Android as well. And so this is going to have a big impact on a lot of these chip makers. As you've seen over the past week, the chip makers, their, their share prices come under quite a bit of pressure. Yeah, significant uh, knock-on effects here, not just on Huawei and its competitors, suppliers, customers and 5G networks globally, specifically in, uh, in developed nations, but pretty big implications on a potential trade war between US and China and implications on Canada too as well, because what happened in Canada was with the, um, the founder of Huawei, his daughter is actually the CFO and she got arrested in Vancouver uh, 
for to be extradited to the U.S. And China has struck back at Canada, arresting a bunch of citizens, Canadian citizens in China, stopping uh, imports of canola from Canada into China. I think they're having uh, issues with soybean now. So very, very far-reaching implications. Clearly, Huawei has close relations with the government, even though they claim not to. So it'll be really interesting to watch how this situation develops. Put out some research this week, and it's called Alpha Rank. Now, what Alpha Rank is, it's our monthly publication of our data platform, our alternative data that we produce here at Accelerate. It represents Accelerate's equity ranking according to our proprietary multi-factor model. What it does is AlphaRank assigns a numeric value to each stock in North America. The scores go from zero, which are bottom rank, to 100, which are the top rank stocks, based on selective predictive factors, which I'll get into. All Canadian and US stocks priced above buck fifty per share and 100 million market capitalization are evaluated. Looking at the report here, what we do is we put together the, the entire universe. We rank uh, at the end of each month all the equities uh, in Canada and the US. So we have a top and bottom Canadian and US stock list. And what we rank these stocks on, basically a five factor model and each factor is a composite of what I call sub factors. So to get onto the top ranked uh, alpha rank list, what we're looking at here are stocks with an attractive valuation that are of high quality with good price momentum positive operating momentum and a great share price trend. On the opposite end for bottom ranking, what we are looking at are low quality companies with a high valuation, bad share price momentum, negative operating momentum and a poor share price trend. So some of the implications of this are, are things for investors to look out for. Obviously, we believe the top ranked Canadian stocks Top-ranked U.S. stocks are attractive buys, attractive to be owned. And on the other hand, bottom-ranked uh, alpha-ranked stocks, we feel the opposite, you know, perhaps a sell or a short position. Although none of this constitutes investment advice, of course, and these are just uh, our alpha rank proprietary system, which in fact some of our hedge fund strategies are based off of. So, Julian, you mentioned some of the use cases on the uh, on the positive side for the Alpha Rank. Um, how how wouldn't you use uh, the Alpha Rank list? Yeah, so I'll tell you how we use it within our fund strategies. We don't straight go long all the top ones and short all the bottom ones. Specifically, short selling. There's a number of things that you need to keep in mind. You want to have a diversified short book, and sometimes in Alpha Rank, like for example, Alpha Rank in U.S., we have a lot of I call uh, low quality uh, speculative pharmaceutical companies. We don't want too much uh, sector concentration in any one uh, sector, especially on the short side. The other thing with respect to short selling, you have to take into account short borrow rates and availability, which Alpha Rank does not, but that does not affect uh, a sell de decision. If you're long a bottom rank stock, you could certainly look into selling it, but short selling these securities are something different. So when utilizing this, we we definitely take into account running a risk model and utilizing a bunch of different constraints, whether it be liquidity, sector exposure, factor exposure, 
etc. But we do believe that it's something that's really worthwhile looking at, running any names you hold long and short in your portfolio against the alpha rank to see where it in fact uh, stacks up in the universe. And also, it's probably a good list to take a look at if you're looking for investment ideas, either long or short. Just to clarify with when you mentioned a risk model, it's what a risk model is, is really just a way of ensuring that you're taking the types of exposures that you're wanting to. And what I mean by that, for example, if you were looking to be long value stocks, let's say you're wanting to be long short value stocks. And all that would mean is that you're not just ending up with some sort of sector tilt because of this choice. For example, long financials, short technology. The risk model helps you become more sector neutral and ensure that you're taking the only the risks that you're wanting to be taking. Yeah, basically you do want a diversified portfolio. You see some portfolios that are perhaps 40 oil and gas stocks, but they are highly correlated. And what the risk model does is help you establish you know, a better portfolio that minimizes uh, correlations between securities. So it eliminate that, uh, that sector bias or highly correlated securities that act very similar. Take that out and basically establish a portfolio of stocks that move independently of each other or, or as much as possible. And that's it, ladies and gents, for episode 14 of the Absolute Return Podcast. As always, you can check out more episodes on absolutereturnpodcast.com. We will be gone for this week, but we'll chat with you next week. Have a good weekend. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast, Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.